Election Day at last in Northeast Ohio and all of Ohio. By day's end, we should know who the first new mayor-elect in Cleveland is in 16 years. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston. Layla Tassi's taking the morning off because she'll be working late into the evening. Actually, as will Laura Johnston, but she's here. So we'll, we're, we're not talking a lot about the election today, but but it's a big, big day, right? This is the, the a year's worth of work comes to fruition. I think there are a couple of interesting wrinkles. The uh, idea that Zach Reed has been working so hard for Justin Bibb in the neighborhoods where he's immensely popular. He's been knocking on doors, making nonstop calls. I think that could actually make a difference to fortify Justin Bibb. Any predictions, Lisa and Laura? I've already made mine. I think it's Bibb by eight points. But what do you guys think? I do think it it'll be Bib. I think that'll I'll come out, and I think it'll be issue twenty four will pass. And then I, you know, this morning there were people out at six thirty in the morning at our rec center with their their school board candidates signs and their t shirts and their coffee mugs, and people were voting. I I think this is going to be a big day for school boards. We're going to see what happens across Northeast Ohio. I I feel like some districts will kind of change hands, and some won't. And here in, here in Lindhurst, all I'm voting for is a school board position and uh, my Ward 1 council person, which I will vote for the incumbents in both. Of course, Lindhurst was not covered by Cleveland.com, the school district, uh, because we weren't big enough, I guess. But I did do my due diligence and look at the League of Women Voters uh, forum and was able to decide on the incumbent going forward. So, And right after this podcast, I'm just going to walk around the corner and cast my vote and get my sticker. I hope a lot of people do the same. This is a big day for voting. Everybody should get out and make their voice heard. Let's go. How much will Ohio's big and medium-sized cities likely lose in income tax revenues because the work-from-home trend that began in the pandemic is not going away? Lisa Garvin, I keep waiting for the lawsuits against this to come to fruition. A whole bunch of us who have not worked a day in Cleveland for really a year and a half have continued to pay large amounts of money to Cleveland, and there are lawsuits saying that's unconstitutional that are dragging through the courts. This is about a study that looks at how this could impact the budgets. Yes, the study was done by the Ohio Mayor's Alliance, and they looked at 10 cities, not including Cleveland, because Cleveland's not a member of the alliance, but they, and cities like Toledo, Columbus, Elyria, Dayton, Cincinnati, Akron, so forth. Combined, they will lose about $230 million in RITA money um, if, if it, you know, if this continues. So, and this could be anywhere from 4% to 11% of their general fund that they could be losing. So this is a significant revenue loss for a lot of cities. As you recall, as the pandemic shut everything down, it allowed cities to collect the tax during the state of emergency, but that expired back in July. And workers are already and can apply for refunds of their 20 and 21 RITA taxes. So I I don't know. I, I feel like I don't know that work from home is, I'm not a work from home person. Um, I, I see that a lot of companies would rather have their employees 
downtown at least some of the time. But there, the, as you said, there are a lot of lawsuits. The Buckeye Institute, which is a right-leaning advocacy group, has sued multiple Ohio counties, including Cuyahoga County, uh, to you know get that money back and then not have that tax if these people continue to work from home. But they're saying that only the, the analysis that was done by Rita says only about 15% of 300 Ohio cities will see a net gain in taxes. So this could be really significant, especially for Cleveland. I'm kind of worried about it, actually. I, I, I don't think a lot of people are worried, though, because a lot of people who have been paying gigantic sums to Cleveland with no say in how it's spent have been annoyed for a long time. I mean, it is the definition of taxation without representation outside income taxes from people who work in the city but don't live there accounts for like 80 or 90 percent of the general fund budget and that there's a great sense of unfairness to that in the land it gets back to the argument that we really shouldn't be a balkanized county of dozens and dozens of municipalities there ought to be one countywide city that shares a uniform tax but so I, you may feel bad, but I think a whole lot of people are thinking, give me my money back because I don't have a say in how it's spent. Today's the big mayor's election, but the people who fund the city have no say in it. And there's always been a feeling like, how, do, how is that right? How is it OK for me to pay this much money to a government that I don't have any say about? So interesting story about what the cost could be. We'll be interested to see whether the courts ultimately rule that you can't just take money from people who have nothing to do with your town. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many hundreds of millions of dollars is First Energy going to pay to customers in refunds? And what are the refunds for? Laura Johnston, it is staggering how many ways First Energy has pillaged the people of this state. You know, they spent $60 million in bribes to get billions of dollars in cash from the ratepayers that they didn't have coming, that the legislature, people like Bill Seitz, continue to defend to this day. And now we find out they were making excessive profits that were so excessive, they have to give some of it back. What is wrong with this state that it has allowed this utility to run roughshod over all of us for so long? I think the answer you're probably looking for is corruption. That is what is wrong. But First Energy agreed to give $306 million in customer refunds over the next five years because it made just too much money. And the settlement means that we will each get about $85.71 over the next five years. So not exactly huge amount of money, but hey, you could go out for a nice dinner with your family, maybe pay a cable bill. But this is the largest refund offered to customers for these, quote, significantly excessive utility profits since the limits were passed by lawmakers in 2008. And that's according to the Ohio Consumers Council. The previous record was $43 million refunded by American Electric Power a decade ago. So this is not the only time that this has happened. But Ohio Edison, one of the subsidiaries of First Energy, they had profit margins in 2017, 2018, and 2019 of between... 16.5 and 18.2 percent and that the issue is that the state law doesn't actually de precisely define what can uh, what constitutes those significantly excessive process yeah they don't profit. know what it is but they know it when they see it <laughs> right. and this is it first energy robbing us blind again caught up short have to pay the money back at some point don't you think the puco should be looking at whether First Energy is something that should continue to exist. And they've been nothing but bad 
for Ohioans and the way they've stolen us blind. They've admitted to it all. I mean, this isn't allegations. They've paid gigantic fines for this. Would we be better off if they were forced to sell off to somebody else who might actually be responsible and do the right thing? Well, I mean, that's a really good question. You know, what happens then? Do they divest? Do they come back to become separate companies again? But they're this monolith in the state that, you know, I can't, it would be a difficult question for what to do with it. And as for another company just buying them, like, how do we know they wouldn't do the same things? We we have all these things set up supposedly to protect consumers, like the PUCO. They're supposed to make sure that consumers are protected. But actually, in 2017, they ruled that First Energy didn't make excessive profits. That ruling was overturned in 2019 when the Supreme Court said that they had improperly approved a charge that cost consumers more than 100 million a year. So the, I mean, I would say the bigger problem is that the bureaucracy we put in place to protect us was not doing its job. Right. So would we be better off if you look at something like the Cleveland Water Department, which does a great job and has invested in itself and, and generally is responsive because the elected officials run it. And if they do a bad job, you have somewhere to go. You know, elect, electricity, water, even broadband, they're life. They're, mm-hmm. they're not luxuries their necessities to exist in this planet why shouldn't we have elected officials running these things instead of trusting just the scummiest people that i've ever seen they they've used every tool in their their toolbox to take advantage of ohioans and steal from us and with with the accommodation of legislators like Bill Seitz, who who continues to this day to send emails defending what the legislature has done here. It's mind boggling. I mean, do you want Bob Cup and Matt Huffman running your utility? <laughs> <laughs> okay, touche. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Voters in Cleveland will decide today whether to put a civilian board much more in control of police th- discipline. On, on Monday, the team overseeing the reform of Cleveland police and federal court criticized the police internal affairs unit for moving slowly and handling cases poorly. Laura, before we get to what the team says specifically, I do want to point out <laughs> there is a question on the ballot today to put civilians in control of discipline. It's striking that the monitor put this news out yesterday on the eve of Election Day for for the voters to know before they go to the polls. I would have thought the monitor would not like this civilian control move because it's kind of structurally flawed. But maybe they're so disgusted after all these years that they're like, you know what, voters, this is how bad it is. Go to the polls and vote. Yeah, because. Cleveland police are not great in investigating their own. And this report that was filed in U.S. District Court under the consent decree, the monitoring team said it identified continuing problems with the group that examines officers' misconduct and that they have a lot of work to do to meet their standards that they set of internally discovering misconduct and reporting it and preventing retaliation. So, and there's actually more investigations ready to begin on evaluating the quality and timeliness of the investigate of the unit. So, I mean, this is not the be all end all, but basically, the fact is that when people when the police is depart police department is investigating their own officers, they're not doing it fast enough. They're not telling their supervisors enough, and and they looked at eight specific cases, two of which I believe can 
included domestic violence against, against officers, and they basically said they're not doing a good enough job. But think about this. The, the original consent decree complaint by the Justice Department, which was based partly on the work that we did on use of force, came out seven years ago next month. So, so Cleveland police have been on notice and the city have been on notice for seven years that their system is completely screwed up and it's still not fixed. Is it any wonder that people are going to the polls today to vote to take control away from city officials and police? They're disgusted with this failure of city leadership to fix this thing. How long does it take to fix something this broken? How much more time should they have? Three more years? Should it be a 10-year effort to bring common sense discipline to Cleveland police? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I understand why people feel so frustrated with this department and especially with getting justice for when a police officer does something wrong because there's this protect your own mentality. And I, I don't blame anybody for feeling the way that they do. And I mean, you can issue all the reports that you want. We, we have an interim police uh, captain who's the interim superintendent we don't have a, a a permanent fixture there and how do you know who they're going to pick the, for the next one and are they going to get anything done i don't know yeah it's just i the timing of this coming out yesterday the eve of this very controversial vote i don't think that was a mistake you're listening to today in ohio First, it was for people charged with minor crimes. Then it was open to people referring family members. What's the latest change at Cuyahoga County's recently opened Diversion Center to expand its mission even more? Lisa Garvin, this is another good step forward, according to the advocates. It is, and it actually allows people who are not involved in pre-arrest situations to basically check themselves in. Um, so... If you have a drug or mental health issues um, and you're 18 or older and you have no violence or sex crime priors are eligible, you have to be able to go voluntarily so your family can't just force you to go to the diversion center. And they will not be taking walk-ins either. You have to call like the frontline services hotline, which is what police and EMS people do right now to refer pre-arrest detainees to the to the uh, diversion center. And uh, Scott Osiecki, who is the CEO of the Alcohol, Drug Addiction and Mental Health Services, or Adams, says that this is really a way to take the burden off the ERs where a lot of people go because they have nowhere else to go and may even prevent a, a crime from occurring. If people feel that they're, you know, teetering towards, you know, doing something bad, they can actually go into this diversion center. So it, it's a great idea. Of course, they've been slowly, slowly ramping up, you know, the capacity there, you know, not a lot of people are being referred from the Cleveland police right now. So this is a way to get those beds in use for people who are really in a crisis. So is, is, practically speaking, if, if I'm addicted to drugs and I wake up one morning and I decide I can't do this anymore, I've got to get clean, I can call them and say, I need help. And they'll arrange for me to get a bed there. That's correct. Yeah. Like I said, they do not accept walk-ins. You do have to call this uh, services hotline. I'm sorry, I don't have the number. Um, there are 50 beds available at Oriana House, which is on East uh, 55th Street. And Mr. Osiecki says that pre-trial diversion is really still their primary mission, but they saw a real need here to help people who have nowhere else to go when they're in crisis. 
Great step forward. Good to good to hear it's opening up. This is one of the more proactive moves the county has made in the uh, time of Armin Budish as county executive. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Early voting is over because today is election day. You're not voting early. If you vote today, you're voting on time. So what was the trend for early voting in this election season compared to previous seasons? R. Johnston, does it offer any insights into how this vote might go? Well, we have more absentee voters than in the last two Cleveland mayoral elections, which makes sense because there's actually a race for mayor. But more than 6,000 people voted early in person as of late Monday morning. In 2017, we were looking at 4,800, and November 2013 was about 2,900 early voters. Um, so that, I mean, that's definitely an increase. And we're also looking at possibly an increase in the vote by mail ballots. 87,000 were requested across the county. That's about 10% of registered voters. And in 2013, we only had, um, oh, sorry, I believe that in 2017, there were 76,000. So we could easily surpass that. I do think that the battle for school boards, the battle for the soul of the school boards between education-minded folks and the people peddling the anti-CRT fiction, the critical race theory nonsense that's not taught in local schools, has frightened voters in local communities, and they want to make sure to preserve the focus on education. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's not driving some of this. I've never, I've never in 25, actually in 40 years of being a journalist, had people writing notes saying, I need help on my school board race. I don't want the bad people to get in. How do I know who they are? So I, I suspect that that's what we're seeing countywide. Uh, again, we'll know more once the results are in. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why is there any question about whether all of the groups that have sued to overturn Ohio's new gerrymandered voting districts will get to make their case in front of the Ohio Supreme Court? What hoops is the court making them go through to get that basic right? Lisa Garvin, we have three groups that have filed three separate lawsuits, and as of right now, only one of them has the right to make the argument. I don't get it. I thought everybody had a right to go to court and make their case. You would think that. And I guess maybe the thinking is in Columbus is that, you know, you we already have one lawsuit. The other two lawsuits are probably just the same in making the same arguments. But the plaintiffs in these other two suits are saying, wait, one, we actually we have arguments and perspectives that differ from the suit that will have a hearing December 8th, which is the one filed by the ACLU and the League of Women Voters. So they feel they have enough merit. So they these two lawsuits, and let's talk about them. One of them is filed by a group, including the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, the Ohio Environmental Council, and the Council for American Islamic Relations. The other suit was filed by a National Democratic Redistricting Group. So they requested last week, they requested to have oral arguments. And so state officials have until tomorrow to respond to this unsigned order by the Ohio Supreme Court. Um, all three suits have filed a mountain of paperwork. They have a lot of extensive written summaries and documents to go through. So yeah, they they need to get their, their day in court, just like the original lawsuit. Uh, I, I don't understand why, you know, they're making them jump through these hoops. So we'll find out tomorrow what the state officials say, but these two lawsuits should get a hearing. 
Yeah, it's a basic right. I mean, they, they, they are making different arguments. They are aggrieved in different ways. And if the Supreme Court wanted to consolidate the suits and have all three be heard as one, but give each of the plaintiffs the chance to make their separate arguments, it just I was struck by the fact that they had to actually seek the right that is pretty much automatic to make their case. So it'll be interesting to see what Bob Cup and Matt Huffman, the Senate president and House Speaker, say to stop this, because you know they will try to stop this. They're doing everything in their power to keep the district gerrymandered, even though the people of Ohio have spoken pretty clearly that they don't want that anymore. We'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio, the recently renamed podcast formerly known as This Week in the CLE. How is Ohio helping people seeking to adopt children deal with the big bills that can come with adoptions? Laura Johnston, this is a little bit of enlightenment coming from the state of Ohio, not a state that's been doing a lot of enlightened thinking lately. Yeah, you got to give them some progressive points for this. But the Ohio Treasurer's Office, their Family Forward program, offers loans up to $50,000 to cover out-of-pocket adoption costs. That includes agency expenses, legal fees, travel, and birth mother expenses. Basically, the state program is going to lower interest rates by up to 3% compared to the market rate. <clears throat> Sorry. And that saves about $70 a month on a $50,000 five-year loan. The idea is that adoption is really expensive, and this program is meant to help families bridge that financial gap as as they wait for state and federal adoption tax credits. And they work with a couple of different banks participating, including Cardinal Credit Union in Northeast Ohio. So it, it, it'll help families that really want to adopt. Yeah, I was I was surprised to see it. It is a big expense. I mean, we've known several people in our orbit do are involved in adoptions and the, the costs do kind of dwarf what you can deal with in natural childbirth, uh, although that too can be quite expensive. Uh, it's just good to see that there's some effort being made to, to help them out. What drove this? Do we have any idea? I don't know. I mean, I, I would, I would assume somebody came forward to, you know, a legislator and asked for it, but this is from, I don't believe they had to go through any legislation to get it. So maybe they just thought, hey, this is a good way that we can help people. And when the state, when the lender makes this loan, the state agrees to make a matching deposit with the bank that allows that lower interest rate to be there. So it's not like the state's just like giving you money to pay back. They're working, maybe they're you know, arguing this is good for business because it's helping banks too. I don't know. But I mean, it's, it seems like a win-win for everybody. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. If Metro Health can do it, why can't the Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals? How did MetroHealth get to nearly 100% compliance with the vaccine mandate? Lisa Garvin, part of me wonders whether that the people who work at MetroHealth are drawn to its much more charitable public mission, but part of me thinks that it's just the Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals being selfish and not doing the right thing for their patients. What's the deal with MetroHealth? How did they do it? They mandated vaccines. They said that, you know, if you don't get a vaccine by October 30th, then you're out of here. 
Um, but they reached 99.94% with that mandate. They did have 12 employees that retired or resigned because they refused to get vaccinated. And they do have about five and a half percent of their employees, about 426 have requested exemptions from the vaccine. And they're reviewing those exemption requests as we speak. Um, they did suspend five people without pay for two weeks. But that's the difference is the mandate. Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals did not require vaccinations of their employees, both clinical and non-clinical, but they do claim an 80% compliance rate. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Can the city of Sandusky finally heave a sigh of relief about the commitment of Cedar Fair to that city and to the region? Lord Johnston, we talked a few weeks back that the there was a fear the headquarters for Cedar Fair would move. I think it was to North Carolina. But all of a sudden, they're flush with cash in Sandusky again. Well, it's good news for Sandusky. There's a, they got an agreement from Cedar Fair to, to maintain a presence there, and there's a $100 million, 20-year public investment in the future. That includes a new causeway to the amusement park and a water taxi paid by an uh, increase in taxes on park admission and parking. So sure, you're, I mean, you, you got to applaud Cedar Fair for maintaining the connection with Sandusky. Everybody's happy about this. But this is going to come from the people who go to the park, not just the company. They're going to increase the city admission tax from 4% to 8%. That's about $2 more on a $50 ticket at Cedar Point. And there's going to be an 8% parking tax going into effect. And if you didn't have that gold pass going in, which I did this summer, it was going to cost you 20 bucks to park. So um, that will raise about uh, 4.5 to $5 million a year over those 20 years. And then they're going to put half of that into the Causeway and Water Taxi, which would go downtown Sandusky and hopefully get a little more business for the city as well. And then there'd be a bunch of other projects that would also get some of that money to help out different you know, things in the city. So the, does this mean the headquarters is absolutely not moving or is it just a big investment that we made there and the headquarters still might move? They did not say they weren't going to move the headquarters. They just said they would maintain a presence in Sandusky. So it has been Charlotte. It's been, people have been moving and when they post new job opportunities there, they could be in Charlotte or Sandusky, but they're saying they will have a big presence in Sandusky. And so, you know, the city's happy with it, even though there wasn't a, guarantee that the headquarters would stay. All right. Well, good news for Sandusky and for all of the roller coaster mavens that talk about it on this podcast, not me. Yeah. I was surprised <laughs> that 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 causeway has been in place since 1957. I mean, that's that's pretty old for a road at this point. And they keep it in good shape, but they say they want this to be the grand entrance to a one-of-a-kind amusement park. So maybe they'll be, maybe they'll widen it. I don't know. A grand entrance because you spend a lot of time parked there waiting to get into the park. <laughs> they want to make it look nice as you enter, like Disney World. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's talk about one more. Troy Smith had a story that... Uh, kind of opened your eyes about what might be ahead for Rock Hall inductions. There was a statement made right before the spectacular event Saturday night that the, we, and we talked about this a bit yesterday, that they want to rotate the ceremony now through Cleveland, Los Angeles, and New York, which would violate the promise that was made to Cleveland a few years back that it would be here every other year. Troy tried to get clarity on this. He tried to find out does that mean it would be in L.A., then Cleveland, then New York, then Cleveland to keep up that two-year cadence or not? And nobody would say. 
They were amazingly mute on this, both at the Rock Hall and at the Foundation. What do we think, Laura Johnston? And what did uh, the head of Destination Cleveland have to say about the financial impact this could have on the city? Well, it's a big deal. I mean, we're talking of hundreds of millions of dollars every time they come. So we want it to be in Cleveland every year. But I'm hoping, I mean, the last time they did LA was what, 10 years ago? Yeah, 2013. Maybe? Yeah. 2013. Yeah, yeah. Almost, almost a decade. And so they stopped doing LA for a reason. I hope, I hope it's Cleveland every other year and that, you know, maybe performers are like, hey, we want to go to Cleveland. Well, it's just odd that they would open up the grand Cleveland ceremony with that kind of ugly news for Cleveland. And it was nice to see Destination Cleveland take a strong stand and say, wait, Dave Gilbert said this would this would hurt. We've done a great job. We've proven that the crowds will come. The artists will come. They can go to the museum. You know, we were talking to Mike Norman yesterday, our, our, our arts and culture editor, and he goes, you know, every other Hall of Fame, it's based on place. It's not the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. You don't talk about making the Hall of Fame. They talk about getting into Cooperstown. With the Football Hall of Fame, it's Canton. Well, the Rock Hall is singular. It's a one and only place in the world where we have it, and it's in Cleveland. Why isn't the ceremony here every year? Good piece by Troy Smith. Check it out on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right. Well, this time tomorrow, we'll be talking about the winners and losers of today's election. Should be fun. We'll have Seth Richardson on to give his analysis of how the Cleveland mayor's race went. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this renamed podcast. <laughs>